And now a word from one of our Bible Live sponsors. Our company is so proud and excited to sponsor the Bible Live. As a businessman, I have to make decisions every day about how to best invest time, personnel, and resources for the best return and results. The scriptures say there are two things on earth that will last forever, God's word and the souls of people. It's my hope that you, your family, your church, and perhaps even your business will pray about giving a tax-deductible donation to the Bible Live at this time. Together, let's expand this historic broadcast of the scriptures to other cities across our nation, a sound investment for both time and eternity. You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website www.thebiblelive.com or mail your check for The Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888. That's P.O. Box 18888, San Antonio, Texas 78218. Welcome to The Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Sophie will ask questions from the Bible Live leads. You call in with the correct answers, and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of the Bible Live. Your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Soapy Dollar. Thanks for joining us tonight for the Bible Live broadcast. I'm so pleased to have you on with us, and I hope you'll I hope you'll join sometime during the next 90 minutes. We're going to be talking about all things biblical. Uh, we're going to be talking about the old book. Uh, this 66 books written over a period of about 1,500 years. Just an amazing, amazing gift that we believe God Himself has given us uh, a record of His. He, involvement in in history. He he stepped into time and space. He he spoke. He acted. He involved himself in the affairs of men and women uh, from creation all through so many so much of human history. And God has acted and revealed Himself to us so that we can know Him and His ways, and so that we could recognize uh, His plan for humanity and His redemptive plan, so that we can come. the The whole point of the Bible. Underneath it all, it's it's a book of uh, history, it's a book of poetry, it's a book of sermons and powerful messages of of encouragement and hope and challenge and calls to repentance, uh, and it, it's it's yeah it has the poetry there talks about the the adventures the joys the delights the challenge sometimes the heartache of what it is to know God follow God and and sometimes we fail uh, as human beings so you see some of that. Uh, so we've got uh, the books of the law, where God uh, revealed himself and, and, and revealed his purpose for humanity, his desire for us to live the way he want us, wants us to live and how we should treat each other. And uh, it, it's just this amazing book that uh, begins what we call the Old Testament Genesis through through Malachi, the books of Moses, and you have the, the books of history. Uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Chronicles—these books of history that trace and track uh, uh, people 
who who God called to walk with him to be a, an earthly uh, vehicle by which he would reveal himself to all the nations of the earth, all the people of the earth, uh, and, and uh, the people Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on. Uh, and then we come to uh, the New Testament, which we'll kind of get we'll we'll get into both worlds tonight. We're going to finish up. Just some final uh, verses from the book of the Judges. Now, most of you know we've been uh, in our reading schedule. We read the final chapters of the book of Judges this past week. Then we read the the, uh, the Old Testament book of Ruth, which is a beautiful, beautiful little book, a, a tiny book of four chapters, but it talks – it just – uh, it's a it's a beautiful book of friendship of love uh, of and it has theological significance in that uh, in that Ruth this Moabite girl this young woman uh, Moabitess who who um, well we'll get into it in just a little bit we'll tell more of the story of it the background most of you may know many of you may know the book of Ruth um, but it's a beautiful little love story uh, about uh, a. a a Jewish woman and her Moabitess daughter-in-law, Ruth, and their friendship and their love for each other and how God uh, brought them together and how they uh, God provided for them and met them in their place of need and poverty and so on, and he met their need and provided a, a love relationship for Ruth, Ruth with a, a man named Boaz that we meet. And, and lo and behold, if they don't turn out to be the great-great-grandparents of, uh, of David, the King David himself, uh, and who went on later to become an ancestor of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. So it's a, it's a wonderful story of seeing how God can take a simple, uh, unimportant life. This is not about Moses or one of the great kings of Israel. This is a simple young girl, a simple woman uh, 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 from from Israel. Her name was Naomi. And they went through tragedy. She lost her husband. Uh, they left because of a, a famine in the land. And her two daughters, her two sons, married two Moabite uh, daughters. And then the two sons were killed. And uh, uh, there's a great deal of bitterness and sadness and tragedy in her life. And yet, and yet, she continued to walk in God and trust in God. And, and we see God work in her, with her, through her, around her, and bring out a beautiful, beautiful. Solution: a beautiful life uh, that he gives to her and, and uh, gives her life meaning and significance beyond uh, anything I'm sure she ever dreamed of as she was an ancestor of the great King David of Israel and, of course, an ancestor of the great uh, Messiah, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, who comes centuries later. So we'll, we'll get into talking about Ruth. Uh, we finished up just the final chapters of the books of Judges. Now, most of you remember we've been going through the book of Judges for the last week or so, and we talked about the uh, these twelve judges that led Israel uh, in the in the years about three hundred and twenty five, three hundred and fifty years before uh, Saul became the first king. Uh, they uh, well, that's one of the great themes of the book of the Judges. The last, the last verse says that uh, this all happened. It says during a time when there was no king, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Let me read it to you. It says, "In those days, Judges chapter twenty-one, verse twenty-five. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right 
in their own eyes. And so it was a time of chaos. It was a time of, to some degree, anarchy and confusion and a great time of uh, uh, these cycles of people, uh, the nation coming back to God and repenting, and then they would uh, sin against God, and they would fall into oppression, and another God would use another nation to, to punish them, to discipline them, and they would be humbled and brought low and oppressed, and then they would cry out to God, and God would raise up a hero, a, a judge, one of these judges that would become a leader and, uh, and rescue the nation from their bondage and their oppression, and then they would experience peace and prosperity and blessing again, and then they would fall back into sin. So it was all these cycles over and over again. And these judges were not all, I mean, they were not to any great extent, they weren't supermen. They weren't necessarily even godly men. They they were human beings that God would use, but it, they had their own problems, each and every one of them. And uh, so we we finished up the book of Judges. We'll get into the, go- the book of the gospel, the good book of Ruth tonight, uh, a sweet little love story that happens um, kind of toward the end of the era and the time of the judges. So with all of the ugliness of the, of the time of the judges, all the failure, all the disappointment, all the, uh, our, our good friend Jacob used to tell us when you read the book of Judges, that it was a way to see all 613 of the laws that God gave to the people of Israel, uh, the book of Judges was a way you could, as you read it, you could, you, it would go through and, and the, uh, the challenge of the book of Judges was to be able to identify all of the laws of God that they broke, that they disobeyed in the, in the book of Judges. Every, every one of the 613 laws of the Old Testament in the book of the Judges uh, and, and, and that God had given to the people of Israel, the Ten Commandments and the Judges and the commands that were given uh, by Moses, uh, all of them were broken. And so he, he, uh, Jacob used to tell us, and, and by the way, those of you who may be tuning in, Jacob is, is not with us anymore in terms of the broadcast each week. He, he can call. I've always told him, Jacob, call in any time with any of your contributions and that that wonderful Hebrew Jewish perspective of the scriptures that he has helped us with for so many years. Uh, so we, we're grateful for that. And of course, we'll continue to draw from those lessons and those things that he taught us. But the book of the Judges was, uh, in some ways, that was it was a primer. It was a way to learn uh, the, the the commands of God and, and His laws. And if you got through the book of Judges and you were able to identify all 613 laws that were broken, then you passed and could could go on to the next grade. But if not, you just go back to the beginning and start all over again, uh, he always said. So uh, we, uh, we got through the book of the Judges. We finished our readings this last uh, week, and then we read the book of uh, Ruth, and then we have made our transition now back to the New Testament. That's what we do. We back, we kind of bounce back and forth. We alternate back and forth between books of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, and then we take on uh, the books of the New Testament. We read Genesis and Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then we read the Gospel of Matthew. Then we Numbers and Deuteronomy, then we read Mark. Uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and now we'll be going uh, and picking, uh, 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 let me see. 
we read the Gospel of John somewhere. <laughs> it got away from me, John. John is our <laughs> our uh, board operator tonight. If you give us a call, he'll be the one to pick up the call and bring you on the air to uh, give us a question or a thought, some perspective you have on the passages that we've been reading through, or maybe just a general question about the Scriptures uh, uh, broadly, or, or maybe a specific passage you've kind of wondered about. We'd be glad to hear from you tonight here on the Bible Live. So let's let's see what we do. Our oh, our phone numbers, yes, for sure, is 210-340-9585. 210 is the area code, 340 9585. Don't hesitate to give us a call. We'll bring you up on the air and we'll talk a little bit about what's on your mind. Now, these are crazy times we live in. Uh, and I'm thinking now about the, this, uh, oh, all of this, the political world we live in in our own country. We're going such upheaval and everyone, he goes on and on about how we're such a divided uh, country and, and uh, a lot of divisiveness and a lot of, well, we, we know that. We've been seeing that. It's been growing and growing over a, probably a period of 40, 50 years, increasingly, increasingly, this division. And uh, now, of course, it's come to a head. We have this uh, politically, socially, there's so many areas of disagreement and, and, and the direction of the nation and so on. And, and it reminds me a little bit of the time of the people of Israel in the time of the judges. You know, everyone, we, there seems to be a lot of chaos and we don't. There's not a unified sense anymore about who we are in, as a nation. Uh, maybe we'll recuperate. Maybe God will bring us and bless us in that way. We don't know. But not only that, but it, now in the nation specifically, we're dealing with so many uh, internationally. China, Russia, Iran, all of these different problems and and, and and the world growing smaller in a sense through the Internet and travel and the explosion of knowledge that we've seen uh, in, around the world. Uh, it, it, all of those are factors. And then, of course, now we come down to the exact times in which we're living where we see the, you know, President Trump and and uh, President Obama, and we see we see the back and the forth and the and um, impeachment and this and that. There's just a lot of chaos, a lot of uh, divisiveness. Maybe we'll come through it. And now, of course, on top of that, we have you know this coronavirus, and all of a sudden, um, a disease <clears throat> is is ruling the uh, headlines. And, uh, and, of course, now there's some blame game going on about that. But more than anything else right now, everyone's kind of wondering, what's going to happen? What is this new virus and so on? And and it does uh, it does remind me to some extent in times like this to know that, that, that God is in control. God has a plan for the, this world, for the human race. And, and we see through the scriptures, we can see that plan. And we can uh, we can um, analyze and understand the times in which we're living. We can understand them better and better as we understand what what is really, according to the scriptures, what is really going on in human history. Uh, it's not a really about getting rich and this and that and the other. God dealt with nations and empires that rose and fell and people groups and so on. Throughout history, we can learn so many things. And here we are at a time of need ourselves. We can we can learn and make application of these truths about God himself, about God's plan, how God deals with us, God's ways in dealing with people. And uh, we can learn from it. And 
and uh, and and constructively we could we could be blessed as we get back to the old book and let it guide us in our understanding of our times in which we live, how we should treat one another, and what God is doing uh, in our midst. Uh, we can we can do that. So uh, if you want to talk about the Scriptures and some point about the Bible that you want to bring up and discuss or ask a question about, give us a call, 210-340-9585. Help me, John, to remember to give that number pretty frequently because uh, sometimes I forget or we get wrapped up in, in our discussion. Well, let's go now. Let's finish up our discussion uh, about the book of the Judges. I don't want to spend too much time with it. Uh, what I'd like to do, folks, and what our ultimate intent and purpose is, wherever you are tonight, if you're driving your car out across the streets and the highways and byways of San Antonio or across South Texas and uh, listening to uh, this program about this great book, the Bible, I'm really wanting it to come alive to you. I want you to be able to understand what the Bible is about. A lot of people pick up the Bible and it's big you know what, two, three inch thick book, and they go, wow, that's, you know, and maybe you've tried to read the Bible before and you've gone, what is this all about? I, I don't get it. And, you know, we're talking about times long ago and history and, and people groups that lived long ago and so on. And, and sometimes we get a little overwhelmed by all of it. So I want to be able to give you a chance to be able to think through the biblical narrative, the biblical message. Uh, the flow of that message through the Bible, and to be able to recognize and know what the book is all about. And, um, for example, we've already read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the books of what we call the Torah, of the, the Old Testament, the, Old Te- the books of the Pentateuch, which is uh, a word meaning five books, the first five books of the, of the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, the, the Law of Moses, the books of Moses, uh, who is thought to be the author of these books, uh, probably written somewhere around 1,450 years before Christ uh, as the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt. Remember that the book of Genesis begins. It's, it's The word Genesis means beginnings. And so we start off there with the creation of the, of the human race, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and so on. And, and we begin and uh, we get uh, we move through some very powerful beginning opening events that kind of set the stage for what God is doing in and with the human race. And we get to chapter 12, we turn from our considerations from the whole human race, the big picture, we come down to start talking about a man, Abraham. Abraham and his wife Sarah, and he began Abraham, then his son Isaac, and then Jacob, who becomes name is changed to Israel, and Israel, the ten sons of Israel, they become the children of Israel, the nation, the people of Israel. They go down into Egypt. God uses Joseph to rescue them down there, and and they live in Egypt for four hundred and thirty years, and then uh, Moses brings them out. And in, in the book of the Exodus, Moses uh, featured there. They come out of Egypt about fourteen hundred and fifty years before Christ, and then they have Exodus, Leviticus, and number. They go to the Mount Sinai. They're given the Ten Commandments. God dealing with them as a people. He has a covenant relationship with them as a nation, as a people group. Uh, and it not it's not ethnic or biological. It's not genetic. It's not about just people of a certain ethnicity. These people came from many different people groups and backgrounds. It wasn't just the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but there were Egyptians. There were people from other nations that came 
out of Egypt with them, and they covenant with God to become the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God, and and they covenant to walk with God, to obey Him. And God says, "I'll protect you, I'll provide you, and I'll prosper you as you will if you will walk with Me and obey." And so they begin that covenant relationship with earthly. On one sense, it was an earthly covenant. God with them as a people group, and then also it was spiritual in that God was telling that through you, not only are you, I'm going to keep alive of witness of the true and living God through your example and through your walking with me in the midst of a polytheistic and pagan, idolatrous world, you're going to remain faithful to me, and I'm going to use you as, a, as an, an instrument of revelation a witness to the other nations. And Israel was that uh, from the time of the Egyptians and then on to the, the nation of Assyria, the time uh, these different empires that rose and fell, the capital of Damascus and then over to Nineveh, then over to Babylon in the time of the Medo-Persians and so on. All through those periods, God used Israel. They were there in the midst serving as a witness. It's kind of a neon sign pointing faithfully continually to the one true living God, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jehovah. And so that's one covenant relationship. That's a, an earthly covenant that he had with them. Uh, and God used them and was faithful to them. Uh, but also that involved a spiritual covenant that that was that God was calling out to all of the people of the earth. It was God's design. Remember that famous verse in the New Testament, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And you'll notice throughout the scriptures, it's always about all the world, the nations, the people groups, the language groups, always. It's never just about uh, Israel or this people group or, or the Jewish. There was, yeah, he dealt with them. We can learn from that how God dealt with them. But it was always about the whole world. God would use them as an instrument to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. And that part of the covenant was was broad and it was spiritual that he was going to bring through the people the nation of Israel through them he would bring the messiah the savior the redeemer and uh, that is mentioned first in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 God says I'm going to send a savior a redeemer who will uh, who will allow mankind men and women from every nation tribe uh, of the world men and women who desire to know God can come into a confident, secure relationship, be reconciled to the true and living God by the work, the redemptive work of the Messiah, of the Savior, the Redeemer. And so we, we see that the old, all through the Old Testament, the five books of Moses, and you get into the books of, of history with Joshua, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, the books of the Chronicles, these books of history where we see God dealing with that people group all throughout history. We know those key dates and times. See, I'm wanting you to be able to think through the Bible and, and track with me from the books of Moses. Then you get to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second. You go into the books of history where we learn about, um, the, for example, Joshua and Judges. We learned about when they didn't have a king. When they went back into the promised land and you had these these 12 judges that were raised up, we talked about each and every one of them, ending with Samson, uh, the last of the 12 judges in the, in the book of Judges. And then you were introduced to Eli, the, the high priest of that time. And this young man named Samuel, he was an, he was 
born under unusual circumstances. It's a very interesting story, the book of Samuel, how he was born and birthed uh, from the prayers of a, of, a, of a Jewish woman that couldn't have children. And she prayed. Her name was Hannah. And, and, and God heard her prayer and gave delivered her a son. And she promised that I'll give Samuel to you to serve you. So Samuel became an assistant to the priest Eli. And then Samuel becomes this transition personality between the time of the judges and and the time of the priests to the time of the kings and the times of the prophets. So Samuel is a kind of a bridge from the the times of the prophets. So we we get into all of that, and and I'm, I'm wanting you to be able to think through. The books of the law, Moses, then Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and the books of the judge, you know, the, the time Ruth finishes off the time of the judges. Now, we've already discussed the judges at length. It was a very confusing, chaotic time uh, that people uh, did what was right in their own eyes, and God raised up these 12 judges, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, the one woman of, of the uh, among the judges, Deborah. Then there was Gideon. We all remember Gideon, right? And uh, uh, he's kind of one of the more well-known of the 12 judges. Then there's Tola and Jair. They were two of the judges. We don't know a lot about them, just kind of one sentence or one phrase that kind of characterized. But each one of these judges delivered Israel from an oppressive uh, neighbor, someone who was oppressing them and and, uh, uh, conquering them. And each one of these judges had a part in delivering and delivering to the people a time of peace, a time of prosperity uh, in God. And then they would fall back into the sin and back into oppression. And then we would see God raise up. And there's this uh, young man named Jephthah comes along, a very interesting life history. He was a um, born kind of under a shadow he had he was born very disadvantaged uh, he was uh, you know kind of an uh, uh, what we, they used to call an illegitimate child and from uh, from um, Gideon's an unfaithful relationship of Gideon you have that and then and then you see uh, three judges minor we don't know much about them Ibzan Elon and Abdon and finally we come to Samson toward the end of the period and we remember Samson this supernaturally strong individual uh, and we learn about a Nazarite vow uh, there was a provision made that if someone wanted to serve God, they were not in the priesthood, they were not a Levite, but they wanted to serve God, they they would take a Nazarite vow and they would, um, you know, they would not cut their hair, they would not have alcohol and so on. And that was a Nazarite. And Samson took that vow. He was given to his parents, uh, and he became the final judge. He was very untrustworthy. He fell. He was very tempted and fell into um, the sin of lust and so on. But but ultimately, finally, he repented. His eyes were poked out. You know, he'd suffered a great deal, but he ended up being used of God for sure. So so that's the last of the judges. Uh, they did what was right, each in his own eyes. Uh, there was no king. So now we come to the little book of Ruth. That's where we'll pick up in our next segment. We'll be right back. Don't go away. This is The Bible Live. Our phone number is 210-340-9585. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar.
Dr. Stan Shelton with offices at Loop 410 and Broadway has taken care of the Dollar family that's Suzanne and me plus our three children for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to DrShelton.com or call 590-7878. After Joshua and the Israelites had entered the promised land, they failed to drive out the Canaanites and lived according to their own plans. So of course the surrounding nations lured them into sin. God in his perfect patience saved them over and over again. God raised up judges to save the day, to conquer the evil that stood in their way, and judges to make the You're listening to the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. First judge Othniel, Caleb's younger brother, judge Israel forty. Fought against a king named Cushion Richard Thiemann got a spirit combed all his fears. All right, we are back. <laughs> Song about the judges of the Bible. How about that, John? Way to go. Uh, we are back. This is the Bible Live. This is Soapy Dollar on the air with you. You can give us a call throughout the program if you have a thought about the scriptures, about the any of these passages we're discussing. Uh, you can give me a call, 210-340-9585. Love to hear from you. Love to hear your thought, your question, whatever it is, about this great book of books. Now, we were just finishing up our consideration of the books uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, then Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. That's where we are now, these books of history. And it goes on then to Samuel and, and the um, the book of the Kings and so on. What ha- There's some key dates that you should realize if you want to think through the Bible. Um, the 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 key date of the writing of the books of the the first five books of the Bible the the Torah the it is thought that Moses wrote these somewhere uh, around fourteen fifty fourteen hundred and fifty years before Christ as the people came out of Egypt uh, under Moses' leadership during their wanderings after Mount Sinai through the forty years in the wilderness in that period it is thought that Moses uh, wrote the books of the Torah um, then. Another key date, uh, 1446, 40 years later, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, in 1405, 1406, Joshua led the people. Uh, Moses had died, and Joshua led the people across the Jordan River. Remember the famous Battle of Jericho? They entered the Promised Land. Uh, and uh, in 14, uh, 1405, 1406, 40 years after the, coming out of Egypt. And then they entered, at that time, there was about 25 or 30 years of, of war. There was about seven, eight years of, of open war, warfare as they entered the promised land to conquer the, the nations, the pagan and idolatrous nations that were in the land of Canaan. Uh, it had been predicted by, by God centuries before that they that they would be ripe for judgment. Their idolatry, their wickedness, their immorality would be so that God would use the people of Israel as a as a means of punishing and as a means of purging that land. And we see that carried out in, under Joshua's leadership. Uh, about 25, first seven, eight years, open warfare, and then the, each tribe was given the responsibility for clearing out their particular allotment, their particular uh, area that was given to each tribe. 
Um, so you have that 25, 30 years. And then you had this 20, 325 to 350 years of the judges uh, when they didn't have a king, but God would just raise up an, a, a, a hero, a judge in a given moment, as we've already discussed. But some of the key times are for the 1400, 1405, when they entered the promised land. Uh, and then you have these uh, uh, 350 to 375 years where they under the judges. Then in 1050 uh, B.C., 1,050 years before Christ, Saul is uh, 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 anointed as the first king of Israel under the, uh, under, by Samuel, under the leadership of Samuel. He is anointed the first king. So the 1050, and then each of the, these three kings, the first three kings, ruled and reigned for about 40 years. Saul in 1050, David in 1010, and then Solomon, David's son, began his reign in 970 for 40 years. And then around 930, uh, at the end of his reign, uh, the nation divided. You had the ten tribes in the north called Israel, and the the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah in the south, uh, called Judah. And so we begin the time of the kingdom divided. And that that takes us to the times of the king, first and second kings, uh, and and into uh, and in Chronicles is a review of all of that, uh, a different hist- kind of history that was put together later for the people who survived the the time uh, when Israel was finally destroyed. Now there's some key dates there too: Saul in 1050, David in 1010, Solomon in 970. Each of them. Uh, enjoying a reign of about 40 years. Then in 722 B.C., the ten northern tribes fell to the Assyrian Empire. From their, their capital up in Nineveh, they, these northern tribes fell. Samaria, the capital city, was destroyed, and Israel was exiled, never to be reunited, the ten tribes of the north. And then 160, 136 years later, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed by by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and that followed uh, two or three invasions. Uh, this was when uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Daniel were taken over into into Babylon and captive, and so on. 586 B.C. the destruction of the temple over, and the 70 years of exile that until 515, uh, when when God raised up a king that was uh, that enabled them to return to the land. Uh, and uh, in 515, the temple, uh, the altar of the temple was rebuilt and the, the reestablished, and that's generally where they date the 70-year period from 586 to, seven, to, five, um, to 515, the 70 years of exile. And so you have that, and then you begin the time of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. So just thinking through the Bible... All of those prophets, they prophesy, and then we have these prophets that were that were preaching to the people during all the times of those kings. And you can line up, and you can uh, you can align the prophet in what that was prophesying and preaching to the people in in what under what king of Israel. So that's uh, that's some way to look at it. And then you come to the end of the book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Then there are 400 years between the book of Malachi. The last chapters of the book of Malachi predicts then the coming of another another prophet who would come 
like unto Elijah. And uh, predicting, and of course, later on, we understand that that was re- a reference to John the Baptist, uh, 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 an old Test- uh, of the Old Testament prophet mode, who came to to inaugurate and to d- tell the people to prepare themselves to receive the Messiah, the Savior, the King, and and that's what we see John doing. And we'll get to the book of uh, Luke tonight, and we'll see the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke are all about the birth of John the Baptist and his role as he introduces uh, and and prepares the people of Israel to receive the Messiah and as he introduces Jesus and and inaugurates, uh, uh, he is used by God to help Jesus inaugurate his public ministry there uh, in, in Israel. So there's a flow there that you can catch. I hope you can remember some of that. As we move through the scriptures, now let's talk about this little book of Ruth. Uh, it's a remarkable little book. As we said, it's a love story. A woman uh, named uh, Naomi. She's married. She has two sons. They leave Israel because of a, a famine, and they journey to Moab in search of food. There, her sons married Moabite women, Ruth and Orpha, and eventually Mo- Naomi's husband dies, and her two sons die leaving the three women without husbands, and which was a very dangerous situation for the world in that time. Women were very vulnerable, uh, and um, they, needed, they, they were left alone without the men of their lives. So Naomi prepares to return to, her, to Israel, return to her place of her birth and her tribe there in Bethlehem. And um, Ruth insisted on going with her. And you have that wonderful passage. It's it's often read in in uh, in wedding uh, ceremonies where uh, Ruth tells her two daughters, her daughters-in-law, to stay there in Moab with their families, with their people. And Ruth says, "No, don't ask me to leave you or turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God." Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. And that's that that beautiful that friendship and that love between mother and daughter-in-law that uh, we, we see that opens up in the first chapter of Ruth. Uh, after all of this tragedy and all this hardship, Ruth will not abandon her mother-in-law. And so they travel together back to Bethlehem, the city of David. Later on, it's called the city of David. Uh, David, of course, not born yet. Uh, Ruth, as a result of this story, becomes the uh, great-grandmother of the great King David. A very amazing story is, is told there. Now, they go back. Ruth with this Moabite girl, but she is she is converted. She has she trusts and believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She has uh, trusted in God, and she is a follower of the true and living God. And she comes back with her mother-in-law, and we start in chapter two the story of how they survive uh, back in their hometown. Uh, people know her. They, she, Naomi had friendships from her childhood and so on. And so they knew her. And her name actually means, um, it's something very positive. The, uh, uh, Naomi's name means um, a, a delight 
or Joy. It's a very positive name, but she says, listen, uh, my name now should no longer be that. It should be Mora, which means sadness or bitterness. And so, uh, you know, she's had a difficult life. She really has. They go back, and there was a a wealthy, influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz. Uh, He was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. And so we're going to be introduced to a couple of traditions of the of the Jewish people uh, and, and that they had that, it, for example, if you were in a family and you, you're, uh, you have two sons or brothers, uh, if one of the brother's wife died, then the other brother was, uh, was expected to take up, take the woman into his, into his household. And if they had no children to have children by them so that their lineage, so that their family tree would not be left barren. They would have family. And so uh, uh, that's the whole idea. Uh, and uh, There's a name that was given to it. Um, I'm trying to think of the uh, Leverite, uh, Leverite marriage. Uh, and it's when a married man died without children, his brother was obligated to take her in and have children to care for her and to continue his brother's bloodline and inheritance. We see that a number of times in the Bible, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's noted but there was an aspect of that too that in this case Naomi had no other sons so there was no one to be the 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 Leverite marriage and so then another concept came into play which was called the kinsman redeemer that um when a man died and he had no brothers to take his wife in and give her children then the nearest male relative had the option to do so and then down the line well, they went in, there in Bethlehem, they lived, and uh, Naomi told Ruth to go out. Ruth went out and, and, and did what they call gleaning in the fields. You remember in the, in the laws of, of God that God had given to the people of Israel, he told them, don't, don't harvest all the grain in your fields, all the fruit and all the grain. On the, on the edges of your field, you could leave that uh, there and if if grain fell on the ground or something, don't don't pick it up, don't glean it, don't harvest that. Leave that for the travelers. Read that for the leave that for the strangers that live among you uh, and for the poor. And this was called gleaning. And so uh, Ruth went out into the fields, and she came back one day and said, "You know, I went to the field of this nice man named Boaz, and the people were nice to me. They uh, they." Um, the fact is, who that young woman? They actually gave me a place of uh, to to pick up grain, and she came. She was able to gain a, to gather a good amount of grain for them to exist and live, and maybe even to sell. And so, when Mo, when when uh, Naomi heard Ruth talk about Boaz in chapter two, uh, he said, uh, t- you know, he had favored her. She said, you know, here's what you do: go to his field all the time. And they will treat you kindly and protect you. And then she said, you know, go down in, uh, in, the, in the evening when it's time to rest and go and lie at his feet. And, and so it showed his intent and her availability. And Boaz began to inquire, who is this lovely young lady? I'm kind of interested. And um, so he found out, what he finds out is that he is uh, kin. He, to, he has a relationship with Ruth through his kin to Naomi to her husband who has died. And so he knows that he's in that lineage that he could be the kinsman redeemer. 
But there is another person who is a closer relative than Boaz. And so uh, Naomi instructs Ruth to go down. He said, Boaz is a close relative of ours. He's been very kind in letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight we'll be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Go and bathe, put on perfume, and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. And then after supper, you, when he lies down to rest, go and uncover his feet and lie there at his feet. And he will tell you what to do. And this was the, the ritual involved in making yourself available and asking him to consider being a kinsman redeemer. And so uh, he discovers her at his feet, uh, and he says, Oh, the Lord bless you, my daughter. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before, and you have not gone after younger men, whether rich or poor. Don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary for everyone in towns that knows that you are a virtuous woman. But while it's true that I am one of your family's redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight. In the morning I will talk to him. And if he is willing to redeem you very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. And I lie here and rest until the morning. So Ruth lay there until the morning, and then Boaz kept his promise. He went to the city gates. That was where the uh, negotiations, when legal uh, covenants and transactions took place, contracts. And uh, he went there, and he negotiated with the person, the the family redeemer that was closer than him, and he said, "You can you can bring Ruth into your family. You can redeem her, and she can. Now she would be brought into his family, that he would have children by her, and they would inherit from him." And the man says, "Okay, you'll do that. I'll do it. I'll redeem her." And look at chapter four, verse um, five. The man says, all right, I'll redeem it. I'll redeem her into my family. And Boaz says, of course, if you purchase the land from Naomi, also requires that you marry Ruth. They had, uh, they had an inheritance of land, but also requires you that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family name. And that's when this family redeemer backed away. Then I can't redeem it, he said, because it might endanger my own estate and the inheritance of my wife and not my children. So I free you. You can redeem the land. I cannot do it. So in that days, uh, it, it, we see the custom here that Boaz came into place where he could redeem this young Ruth, and he takes her into his family. He marries her. And uh, they have children, and 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 Boa, uh, Ruth is blessed. Um, uh, Naomi becomes uh, a grandma, and she's so happy, and her life has been redeemed. And um, so the the chapter four of Ruth ends with Boaz taking Ruth into his home. She became his wife, and and they have a son, uh, and his son. They are the great grandparents of the great King David. Uh, and it gives uh, Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab. So and let me see. Uh, Nashab was the father of Salmon, Salmon was the father of Boaz, uh, and Boaz now was the father of Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David himself. So we see Boaz there in the lineage, and, and Ruth in the lineage of the great grandparents of the great King David. 
through whom we are told later the king of Israel, the ultimate, the Messiah himself, would be born in the lineage of David and would sit on the throne and his kingdom would last forever. And so, therefore, as you open it, we move to the book of Luke, which we also read uh, this, this past week in our reading, reading schedule. If we look into the Gospel of Luke, we see that uh, Luke traces uh, the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam. Now, Luke is a physician, a doctor. He's the only, uh, he's the only Gentile writer of the books in the New Testament. He is a physician himself. Uh, he was a friend and accompanied um, uh, Peter, uh, I'm sorry, Paul, on many of his missionary journeys. And so Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, which is a history of the, the life of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. And then also he writes the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which is a history of after the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, then he writes the history of the early uh, the early church, the early followers of Jesus uh, as they uh, take the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all through the uttermost parts of the world, all throughout the, the uh, Roman Empire of that era in that first century. And so Luke writes uh, uh, about that history uh, in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, and so he writes those two books, and uh, we'll get to those in just a moment. But just... Just first, what we see there in the, in the in the book of Ruth, it's a beautiful story, and maybe some of you have a, have a, a something a comment or something you'd like to say about the book of Ruth, something that you've learned. But it's a story of friendship, it's a, a story of love between the mother-in-law and her daughter. Uh, it's a, lo- a story of faithfulness to God and God's faithfulness to them, even in the dark. Difficult, chaotic, and sinful, um, harsh world of the times of the judges. Coming at the end of the time of the judges, we have this sweet story, and it gives us hope that even in difficult times, God is still at work. God is still there. God still uses his people. Uh, We don't always know their names. They're just insignificant, normal people like Ruth and like Naomi and, and and like Soapy Dollar and like you in your in your car and your home as you listen tonight as you are a follower of Jesus Christ and one who loves God God can use you you will make a difference uh, in this dark and difficult era and time in our world uh, and in our own nation as we will be faithful to God and to continue to love him and serve him and obey him and to share his love with others then God will use us as well as a as as a beacon as a point of light and hope Uh, and and the book of Ruth gives us that hope it gives us a great example of how God will use our lives far beyond what any of us ever dreamed or thought possible God will use us uh, and he is he loves you and he's got you in his hand that the book of Ruth is a beautiful beautiful story coming at the end of the time of the judges and it introduces us now from into the time of uh, the the history of Samuel and in the times of the king, David, I mean Saul, and then David, then Solomon, uh, we are transitioned now. Uh, th- at the end of the time of the judges, uh, uh, we don't know exactly who wrote the book of Ruth. It was. It is thought that it was possibly written perhaps even uh, in the early times of the reign of David, that they maybe went back and told something of the history and his ancestry. And this story uh, was so beautiful that they told it. 
but it, but it reminds us that even in the darkest times, God is at work. God has his people, and he will do great and good and wonderful things. Uh, in, in even in the harsh and difficult times, the people of God are still there. It gives us that hope. If you have a thought about the book of Ruth, uh, about her experience and what God, how God used her, uh, you can give us a call. I'd love to hear from you, uh, and we can talk about that as well, the book of Ruth. But I do want us to jump over now in our final segment as we're ending, coming to the final uh, segment of our program. We're going to jump over now from uh, the book of the, of the Tanakh and the, uh, the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, before we get into the books of Samuel and, and the Kings and begin those books of history. Let's jump over into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. That's where we want to begin today in the Gospel of Luke. And and uh, talk about uh, this. Now, Luke, as I said, begins his gospel talking about this prophet of the Old Testament style, John the Baptist, he's called the baptizer. Uh, but in chapter 3, Luke gives the ancestry uh, of Jesus of Nazareth, starting at chapter 23. And he traces Jesus' ancestry back, not just to King David, or even to Mo, but all the way back to Adam and Eve. Uh, it's a, a great portion there, uh, and and but he's it's part of the theme of Luke. It has a purpose, uh, as just as Matthew spoke of Jesus, he wrote his gospel essentially targeting the people of Israel, announcing that Jesus was the King of Israel. He was the Messiah, long promised, awaited Redeemer, Messiah, Savior that God had promised would come through the people of Israel. Then. Matthew uh, did that. Uh, Mark talked about Jesus the servant. Matthew, Jesus the king. Uh, Mark, Jesus the servant. And now Luke, being a physician, is going to emphasize the humanity, the human nature of Jesus in his role in his life. And so we'll come back and talk about the Gospel of Luke. We read through the first eight chapters in our reading schedule, and we'll get into the New Testament Gospel of Luke in our final segment this evening on The Bible Live. Give me a call if you'd like, 210-340-9585. I want to know your call would be welcome. We'd love to hear from your thoughts about these passages or any of the, of the books of the Bible that you want to discuss, a question or a comment that you want to make. We'll be right back. Don't go away. This is The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. to the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. All right, we are back for our final segment tonight. 
Love that song, Agnes Day, the Lamb of God. Uh, that's, of course, talking about the Messiah, the Savior. That's why John the Baptist, uh, when he sees Jesus, was told in the Gospel of John, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all of those predictions, all of those pictures we have in the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, I mentioned a while ago that all through the Old Testament, we see God teaching his people how we should live, how we should treat one another, uh, and the laws that he gives to the people of Israel, the way they should treat each other and so on. Uh, so th- that was a great emphasis. But also there's another covenant, an, a spiritual eternal covenant being carried out, and that is he's going to bring through the people, uh, the nation of Israel, through the people group, he's going to bring a Redeemer, a Savior. And we see many pictures of the Savior, the Redeemer, in the, in the Old Testament. The Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, Way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, after Adam and Eve have fallen into sin, we have the first verbal promise of God is going to send a Redeemer, one who would crush Satan's head and destroy, you know, Satan had moved to tempt Eve and Adam and Eve into sin, and now God announces, I'm going to put an enmity, conflict between you and the woman, speaking to Satan uh, through, the, through the serpent who has interfered, and he says, you will, you will uh, bruise him in the heel, but he, and not talking about an extraterrestrial or an animal or an angel, he says a human being, a seed of, of the woman, he said, he though, will crush your head. And so we have that first verbal promise. Now, we'd already had a, a symbolic or dramatized picture of the Messiah, because remember when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing that happened, well, see, they enjoyed an intimate personal relationship with God as they in the Garden of Eden, and they walked with God in the cool of the evening, and they experienced God. Uh, they, were, they were created in innocence, and yet uh, they, they, had, they enjoyed a wonderful, intimate relationship with their Creator. But there was this tree of the knowledge of good and evil through which they were intended to come into the, into the experience of knowing the difference of good and evil by experience. And it was to teach them to be free moral agents. But they learned the difference between good and evil by making the wrong choice. And so now, uh, before they walked in, in humility with each other, they had a wonderful open relationship, Adam and Eve, together with their God. But immediately after their fall into sin, all of a sudden they were embarrassed to, in front of each other. They blamed each other. They're the woman that you gave me, and she did it. And, and, and all of a sudden the relationships began to crumble. They, they hid from God where before they had welcomed his presence and fellowship with him and with each other. And so in their shame and in their guilt, they tried to cover their shame and their nakedness, we're told in the book of Genesis. But then it says, God said, where are you? And they learned of their sin, and, and, and they, they confessed up to him. And God, it said God covered their nakedness, and, and he covered them with skins. Now, in order to provide those skins, some animal had to die. And I'm and, and and there we see the kind of the first picture of the idea that God they had to watch the life flow out of an animal they had to watch the animal bleed and die to be covered their sins to be covered and so we have the first kind of a picture of the fact that uh, uh, the soul that sins it shall die the the consequences of sin is, is death spiritual death uh, not only physical death but that broken relationship 
with God, the loss of that, that relationship, separation from God, uh, and, and that the serious consequences of sin, and it says the soul that sins, it shall die. Without the shedding of blood, we're told in the Hebrew Scriptures, there is no remission. So God begins to teach them right away that there's going to be a Redeemer. There's going to be a redemptive plan to restore them, uh, to restore humanity, the possibility of being restored to that relationship with God. And it would come through what we call theologically substitutionary atonement. There would be one who would come who would take our sin upon himself, and that would be our Redeemer and Savior. And all through the Old Testament now, we see details given uh, over 300 predictions about this Messiah, this one who is going to come, uh, characteristics of his life, of his ministry, the lineage, the place of his birth, so many details about his life and the ministry that he would exercise are predicted in the Old Testament. And um, and, and that we see that he would be, there were predictions of a great king, a redeemer, a savior, a hero, but also there were predictions of a suffering servant. Uh, we see that. And so we, that's why in, in Jesus, in the time of Jesus, many of the people expected the Messiah to come and liberate them from Rome and become a great hero and restore uh, the nation of Israel and so on. Uh, and they they looked to that, to the Messiah to do that. But but Jesus came first as a suffering servant. He came to take, uh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes upon himself the, the sins and forgives, the, brings about the forgiveness. He was that that. That, that Agnes Day that we heard the song about right now, the Lamb of God. And so all of those predictions, verbal predictions about the Messiah, and all those pictures of the Messiah that we find in the sacrificial system, uh, we find it in the tabernacle, we find it in the temple, we find it in the priesthood, we find it in the priestly garments. We see so many pictures, in the, even, in the, in, even in the capital city in Jerusalem, uh, there are imagery and, and that we come, that we receive, and pictures of God's redemptive plan that would be that would be central and focused on this Redeemer, this Savior who would come. Uh, and so, uh, so that brings us to the New Testament, and the Gospel of Luke picks up. This is after a 400-year period of, of silence in terms of uh, the great prophets, the last prophet of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And it doesn't mean that God was silent. He didn't sp- speak. He still acted. He still spoke. But in terms of the great prophets that were that we hear in Scripture, uh, it ended with Malachi. And in 400 year- years later then, in the Gospel of Luke announces here the birth of John the Baptist. Now, a very, very interesting individual, John. Uh, one of the things that Jacob used to tell us uh, so clearly and that, that I have picked up and learned from him so much about from that Hebrew or Jewish perspective of the times in, in which Jesus lived, the first century, was that the, the, we often underestimate, I think one of the great mistakes we make as Gentile believers today in, in, the, in the times in which we live, even when we read the New Testament, we don't have a real appreciation for the the depths of corruption and compromise that existed in the time of the Roman Empire. Uh, the Romans dominated Israel, and there was a great deal of compromise and sin and corruption, even in, in, the, in, the, in the Jewish culture, in the society, in their politics, in their religious life. Um, uh, a statue of Caesar was placed into the temple. Uh, the, the, the priesthood was compromised. The, the priesthood was to be the children of, of the tribe of Levi, 
the Levites were to be the priests who would who would look for the spiritual uh, well-being of the people of Israel and the the high priest and others, and, and so they would be the ones who would uh, take on these certain roles of spiritual leadership to the nation, uh, and yet. Uh, under the Roman rule, there was a great deal of comfort. The Romans sold and uh, sold the priesthood, and they would to the highest bidder. And there were people in the priesthood who who weren't Levites; they shouldn't have been there. Uh, and uh, the the high priest himself had to go to the to the to the Herod's uh, uh, temple. Uh, the the king was not was not Jewish, uh, and so on. Uh, Herod himself, and he had to go every morning and and pick up the priestly garments from Herod, and he would go and wear them, and in the evening he had to return them to Herod. There was a great deal that we could learn. We understood, if we understood the depth of corruption and compromise that existed in the spiritual, the social, even the political realm of the time of Jesus, of the people of Israel in the time of the Roman Empire uh, and, and their domination. But it's just in that time that that God announces uh, through uh, his angel Gabriel takes a principal role in these o- opening chapters. It says that there is a, a a Levite, a priest named Zacharias, Zachariah, and his wife Elizabeth, both of both of them from the priestly line of Aaron. Both of them Levites. Zachariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of God's commands, and they had no children. But God gave them a child. He announces Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel comes to to Zechariah while he is serving in the sanctuary. He come up. His rotation came up, and this rotation was set in place by David many centuries earlier. And they're still following that rotation of the priesthood who would come and minister in the temple during certain times. And of course, those who came to keep the gates, the keeper of the gates, and so on, the, and, and the choir members, even the musicians, were set up on a rotation basis that was set up centuries earlier. Now, Zechariah goes into uh, it's his time to serve in the temple. He goes and serves faithfully and loyally, and the angel Gabriel is sent uh, is sent to as his is an, uh, an archangel Gabriel, and he is a messenger. We see him in many instances. He goes to speak with uh, Daniel. We saw in the Old Testament and other places, but now he comes to. He says, "I am a, I am Gabriel." Chapter one, verse fifteen, verse nineteen. I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. What an amazing, what an amazing instance that would be, that moment. Uh, and he says, it was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, and he told him that you're going to have a child. Uh, don't be afraid. You, God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. He will agree in great joy. He will take a Nazarite vow. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks and so on. And he says, he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God, and he will be the man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah, the the, the Lord. And, and so Zechariah doubts it. He says, I'm old now. I, I can't have a child. And, and, and he says, I'm Gabriel, but because you have not believed what I've told you, you will be silent. You will be unable to speak. He gave him a sign to confirm that, that this message comes from God. You are going to have a child, and you will not be able to speak until the child is born. And um, <clears throat> and so that happens. Uh, his wife Elizabeth is found with child. She has a, she's going to have a baby, and Zechariah cannot speak 
for all of those months of the pregnancy. Uh, and But only after he is born, and they say, what's going to be his name? He writes on a piece of paper, his name is John. And at that point, he then is able to speak. His name is John. You read about that uh, later on in chapter 1, uh, verse uh, 61 and 60 through 64. His name is John, and instantly he was able to speak again. Now, that is how God brought John the Baptist, who is going to be the, the forerunner. He was to come ahead of the prophet in, in the mode, in the model of Elijah, uh, that he would come and he would be the one who prepared the people, many in Israel, back to, to trust in God and to obey God and prepare them to receive the Messiah. And so in the sixth week of, of her pregnancy, in the sixth month, I'm sorry, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel comes again to Nazareth to a village in Galilee, and he comes to Mary. Uh, a young maiden, Mary, who is engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, and they are both descendants of King David uh, in the lineage of David, which was important because that's the Messiah had to be born of the lineage of David. And Gabriel tells her, the favored woman, the Lord is with you. And Mary is confused uh, to think what the my, uh, angel might mean, but he tells her, you're going to have a child, um, don't be afraid. The, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Yeshua, Jesus, his, before, which means Savior. For he will be a great, and will be he will be very great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And so this is that one that is predicted and prophesied all through the Hebrew Scriptures as announced here at the first of the chapter of the book of Luke. And, and, and Mary said, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. And, and, and he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and a, burden, a baby will be born who will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Uh, you, your relative Elizabeth... now. I find it interesting here that he uses, uh, an, uh, you know, I just said a while ago, Zechariah had his doubts. You know, well, I'm old, I can't, and and he lost his voice during the, the final months of the pregnancy until John was born because of that. And God uses the miracle of John's birth and, and uh, Elizabeth, um, Elizabeth pregnancy to to give Mary confirmation. Um, they were relatives. And he said, your, 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 um, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren. Uh, she's now in her sixth month of pregnancy, for nothing is impossible with God. And so that he used John's experience to give Mary confidence that this prophecy, this prediction is going to become true. And then you have this beautiful response from Mary. I am the Lord's servants. May everything you have said about me come true. Then the angel left her. And a few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country village to <laughs> hill country. Uh, um, it's like I'm here in San Antonio, right? Of Judah to, to the, Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. And uh, they greeted each other. And at the sound of Mary's greetings, Elizabeth's child in the womb leapt within her. 
and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And and then Mary gives this beautiful song. It's called the Magnificat. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of this lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. It's a beautiful song that she comes with there, a praise and worship to her God. And uh, so we see now this amazing way that God brings about the birth of the Messiah. Uh, As predicted, there's going to be a – if you want to see that prediction, look in Malachi. Let's let's just look at it real quickly. The last chapter of the book of Malachi, chapter 4, Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Uh, otherwise, I would come and strike the land with a curse. And so there's, there's this prediction uh, that, that, that I'm going to send uh, Elijah, one like Elijah, to prepare the way for the day of the Lord, the Messiah's coming. And so we see that happen here in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, he outlines that. Now, Luke himself, as I said, is a Gentile uh, of Greek heritage. He's not a Jewish. He's the only Greek writer of the, in the books of the New Testament. Uh, but he is a friend of, and a, a, he accompanies Paul in some of his missionary journeys. And he, as I said, wrote the Gospel of Luke and also the, the book of Acts. So he starts out by presenting John the Baptist, who's to prepare the way, and then he gives us uh, the experience of of Mary and Joseph as he they uh, are going to experience the birth of Jesus in chapter two. And this is the birth uh, narrative that is most often read at Christmas time. The angel of the tells about the shepherds and about the angels, and Jesus presented his birth and is presented in the temple at age eight. We see that Jesus is born. Now, one thing I want us to see for sure is that Jesus is born of a virgin. This is not, this is of a different lineage. I want you to hear what I'm trying to say here because it will have consequences as we read through the New Testament. You're going to see Paul build on this idea that Jesus is the, the, the firstborn of the, a new race of humanity. Yes, he is human being. He's fully human. He's born from the time he's a fertilized egg on the wall of Mary's womb to the time he dies and, uh, on the cross and resurrected. And sin. He is fully a human being through all the phases of the life of us as human beings. And yet he's not of the descendancy of Adam and Eve. He is, he is a new creation. He is the beginning of a new race of human beings, the race of the redeemed. And he is, the in his role as the Messiah, why has Jesus come to planet Earth? Why did the eternal, the Son of God, from eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, uh, why did this, the, the, the second person of the Godhead, the, the eternal Son of God, why did he take on flesh? And, and what we see and understand from the New Testament, and it's important that you understand from the very beginning, he took on flesh so that he could live the perfect life of faith and trust and obedience and submission to the God the Father, live the perfect life of a man of faith. 
So Jesus grew to know who he was. He came to understand his identity as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Redeemer. He came to understand it through his parents, their witness and testimony, through the scriptures as he studied them in the synagogue. And by age 12, he comes to understand that he is indeed that long-awaited, promised Messiah, Redeemer. He says, I must be, don't you know I must be about my father's business? And he's not talking about Joseph in in the carpenter shop. He's talking about God the Father, who he is now the Son of God, and he is there to walk out a perfect life of faith and trust and submission and obedience to God the Father as a man, not using his initiative, his prerogative, his authority, and his power as God, but he walked under, he knew he was God because of the witness of his mom and dad and parents and the, and, and the testimony of the scriptures. By faith, he understood who he was, his identity, but he walked under in submission and under by faith perfect faith and trust in, to the father then he who knew no sin became sin for us that's what we're going to look at as we go through the gospels here from Luke Matthew Mark and now Luke and then John John we're going to see Jesus walking out that perfect life of faith and trust and submission to the father as a man and we'll look at that particularly in the fourth chapter of Luke when Jesus is tempted, we see that the Holy Spirit is tempting Jesus to act of his own initiative, his own prerogative, his own power, his own authority as God, and uh, trying to get him to eliminate himself from being our Savior, our Redeemer, our Mediator, our Representative. If he could get Jesus to act of his own prerogative and initiative as God, instead of trust and obedience and submission to the Father, then he could... And nothing would happen to Jesus, and, and if he is God, he's God. That cannot change. Nothing would happen to him, but he would have been eliminated from being our Savior, our Redeemer, because uh, of acting of his own prerogative and initiative. Uh, in the Gospel of John, later in, in several places, Jesus says, I can do nothing of myself. I, I can't do anything of my own power and initiative and prerogative as God. I only do what the Father says and what he guides me. And by the enabling of God's Spirit on my life, I follow that leadership to carry out his role as the Messiah. I hope you get that and understand that. I'll try to reiterate it several times. And you'll see that all through the Gospels and through the New Testament, we see that that is the role of Jesus uh, uh, from his birth, he is that role that why that he took on flesh was to be that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to be our Redeemer, the Savior uh, that we see and talked about all throughout the New Testament, that long-promised Messiah. So uh, we'll get into further. Uh, we don't have time now, but we'll pick up there at chapter 4 with the, the temptations of Jesus uh, at, uh, after his 40 days of, of uh of uh, fasting after his uh, baptism by his second cousin, John the Baptist. We'll get into next week talking then about uh, Jesus, his temptation, about then he begins his public life, his ministry, he calls his disciples, and we'll go on through the Gospel of Luke, emphasizing the humanity, the human nature of the Messiah and why he took on flesh and how he successfully carried out the role of the Redeemer by the enabling power of God's Spirit and the Father. God bless you folks. Have a great, great week. We'll see you then. Bible Live is dedicated to helping restore the Bible to our culture. Mailing address is P.O. Box 18888. That's Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas. 
7-8218. Hear the entire Bible every year on The Bible Live, weeknights at 9.30 on this great station. Then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on The, the Bible, Bible Live Quiz Show. Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and the Bible Live broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world.